Hasn't one of the big messages over the last at least couple of years been that we really don't understand where our electricity comes from, how it gets there, really some of the, the practicalities of if we're going to go renewable, some of the practicalities there, or of hydro, or certainly of nuclear, that's been very controversial to this point, all of that kind of stuff. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Meredith Angwin is the person who I think a heck of a lot of analysts start with because of her amazing work on the subject of energy, uh, the electrical grid, how it works. And it was before it was popularized by the latest crises. Her book, Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid, is literally a classic considered by uh, people in the business. Also, strategies for pro-nuclear advocacy, again, done well in advance. Uh, Meredith joins me now. Meredith, I was thinking I wouldn't mind your crystal ball, by the way. Uh, you know, so, so you wrote about the fragility of the grid in 2020. And then uh, what was it, an hour later, Texas decided to show you what a real blackout looked like? And, uh, the book was published in late uh, 2020 in Texas. Yeah. Didn't have a problem till February 21. So it was like, I was, I was, I was. Nine weeks ahead of time. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Everybody turns in, what the heck has happened here? Let me ask you this. I mean, it's straightforward, but are you surprised by the lack of sophistication or understanding about something so primary as electricity, about the grid, about transmission, uh, which, of course, integrates with renewable energy or any change we have in mind there, all of that kind of stuff? I mean, it just seems to me that some of the most straightforward concepts are not understood. Well, I, I'm surprised and not surprised. Um, I, I think I'll just uh, illustrate this with a story. I, I went to a meeting about uh, teaching uh, children about science or whatever, and uh, there was someone there that was talking about um, teaching them about electricity. And, uh, and I said, oh, you know, it's really amazing to me that the, the fundamental equation for a heat engine is so simple and you can teach it to the kids. It's the high temperature minus the low temperature over the high temperature. It's the maximum efficiency that that heat engine can have. And you know, our, 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 uh, turbines and our, our cars and everything that takes heat and turns it into mechanical work is basically a heat engine. So we're just surrounded by heat engines and, and the, and the, the, the ruling formula is very simple. And he says, oh, no, we don't explain that to them. That, that would be too complicated. I think he hadn't heard of it. But at any rate, the next question, I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, we talk about photovoltaics. I said, are you kidding me? Quantum jumps, Fermi levels, you do that? And he said, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. <laughs> anyway, so what I'm trying to say is people haven't been given any even accessible technical grounding in it. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that quantum levels and Fermi geometry are harder to explain than the heat engine formula, but they're not that hard. I mean, if you have to calculate them, they're hard. But if mm -hmm. you want to just uh, know about the wonderful uh, uh, knowledge that uh, Enrico Fermi uh, uh, came up with, he was he was a uh, he was a man for the ages. When you think about what he did both both about nuclear and about radioactivity and the first nuclear uh, chain reaction. And his whole work on Fermi-Dirac statistics is the basis for everything. Mm -hmm. It's the basis for everything that we, every electronic thing we use. 
I was just thinking along those lines uh, on the, uh, the, during the week, just thinking that people have to, under, now I'm talking about economics now, have to understand if you want to talk about price of things, well, energy is introduced to everything, everything we do. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's to power a, a big machine, a small machine, it might be inherent, but to misunderstand that. So uh, let, forgive this question because this is really simplistic. It's nice you've spent, and by the way, I should have mentioned you're a working chemist, speaking of science. Well, I was, I'm retired now. I'm in my yes. I'm not working at a lab. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, uh, you know, so you've, you've written, you've broadcast, you've done this on the electrical grid. So this is one you're going to leave this and phone a friend and say, this guy was an idiot <laughs> because he asked me to summarize something so complicated. But the bottom line is, as I said, you know, as you mentioned, Texas in February 221, blackouts became real. We hear about blackouts in California. Uh, South Africa just has experienced about 80% Right. You know, blackouts. And and every day, I, I literally, you could Google blackout and you see who's having a problem. Is this something that's just going to be, we're going to have to live with? I mean, I know, I, I, forgive the oversimplification, but is this going to be just an ongoing story here? Well, let me say that the, the, I divide the grid into two kind of sections of uh, thinking about it. One is the, the policy grid. The policies we put in place, like renewable portfolio standards, or we, we love nuclear, we hate nuclear. And then there's the physical grid with, um, with uh, uh, the uh, transfer of energy across transmission lines and into your home and stuff like that. And basically, the problem is that we have made so many bad decisions on the policy grid that it is affecting the physical grid. And the trouble with that is that while we can talk about the policy grid until we're blue in the face, uh, we can really, you know, we can, we can set up, you know, plans and we can do this and that. When you get right down to it, when it translates to the physical grid, the physical grid can only do what the physics allows. Mm -hmm. And that means we end up with things like blackouts. So when you say, are we stuck with blackouts forever? The answer is, unless we change our policies, we are probably stuck with them forever. And, and of course, we have policies that are so absurd uh, what I mean by that is that we are simultaneously supposed to conserve energy and conserve electricity and electrify everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's and a wonderful not, example. I mean, really, I mean, you can hear anybody talk, uh, the same person will tell you that it's important for the world that we get rid of our gas water heaters and gas stoves and, 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 and electrify everything. And that we also save electricity because, well, you know, it, 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 it we don't want, uh, we don't want, um, uh, fossil fired electricity and we don't want nuclear electricity and, you know, uh, even the renewable people are willing to say that renewables are not going to take over a hundred percent of what we're using now. It's going to be somewhat less and uh, we got to conserve. And I'm like, wait a minute, is this two parts of the same speech or are you just gone into some kind of schizophrenic uh, uh, <laughs> uh, dual personality event? I mean, I, and I, I don't mean to be, uh, I had a, a friend in high school who had a schizophrenic break, so forget about what I said, schizophrenia. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, basically, it, it's 
you, you can hardly describe it in any rational way that people would say both things in one interview. Yeah. Well, and I just think, again, we've been focusing on money talks and I think early also on just the a fundamental inadequacy of the practical approach you know, a transmission, which of course you are an expert in, but I mean, just even telling someone, you realize how much you've got to change the transmission, how much you've got to change that grid, regardless of some of the other constraints, if you want to go EV everywhere, you know, and it just seems no planning for that whatsoever or nothing adequate, I should say, because someone might say, hey, we're putting up a charging station outside the city or something, but it's inadequate. It's not even close. No, it, it, it isn't close. And, uh, and also, there's a feeling that somehow or other, one size fits all, that if you, you have charging stations, then everybody will be fine because most, uh, most charging stations, let's say uh, you can do 40 miles uh, uh, if you have a uh, hybrid, okay, on a charge. Well, okay, that, that's actually quite nice in the city. But mm -hmm. if you're out here in, in, in Vermont, I mean, things are – not very concentrated. I mean, if you had, for example, a, a tradesman, an electrician, he could expect to drive his car, what, to 150 miles in a day to get to all the places he has to go? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean you know, it isn't, a, it isn't like he can take a subway and, you know, get, get from here to, uh, to uh, the outskirts of Burlington to do a job. Does that come back to this this sort of ideological one size fits all? Because I'm thinking when you say wide open spaces, my goodness, I'm in Canada. Isn't it just one big wide open space with a few exceptions? You know, but I mean, a very uh, a very important point you're making that they have one size fits all. Oh, we're going to be all uh, electric by 2035 or something. That, that's what well, that's what our number is here. Uh, but some go 230. You know, it's just the impracticality is just mind blowing, and all of that all that that statement really means in terms of if it was going to be true, what you'd have to do to accomplish that. Well, my feeling is very much if it can't happen, it won't happen. And so mm. that sometimes I just, I just say, okay, they can make all these statements, but you know, it's uh, fine. It, it isn't going to happen. So I, I mean, I'm not going to lie awake at night worrying that it'll happen. And you know, it just, it just simply can't happen. So it won't happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and that's a, a sort of cynical thing to say about what other people are devoting their lives to. You know, they are devoting their lives to electrify everything. But I, I see a lot. We talk to a lot of people, though, who've come to that realization. And at times, you're right. It's, it's emotionally painful. You know, it's difficult. But the practicality just hit them on the head so often that it was so obvious. And I'm talking... I know people from the mining industry, you know, some of the leading cobalt miners, for example, or coffer or lithium, the list just goes on. And as soon as you put it on paper with some practicality, they come back and say, no, that can't, as you say, I love the way you put that, that can't happen. You know, it just simply can't happen. So let the politicians keep talking about it. It ain't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the problem is that I think that everything Raising a child or, or becoming a, a, a fully adult person, I think a lot of the things you do are about learning what is possible and what isn't possible, what to be afraid of and what not to be afraid of. Your average child, a little tiny kid, will be much 
more scared of a dog barking at them behind a fence than of a car coming down the street. So you have to explain to them that the dog's behind a fence and most dogs are friendly and that car could kill them. And they don't know that automatically. <laughs> and and so I feel that there's a lot of things that, yeah, it, would be, it, it can't happen so it won't. But meanwhile, we're living in this fantasy world where we don't understand what we should be aware or afraid of and what we should just say, well, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you, you know, with the book Shorting the Grid, I got a lot of coverage, especially as I say, from people who I call sophisticated in a good way, in a very positive way. Uh, they would look and say, well, they did. They looked and said, nobody's done this. Nobody looked at the hidden fragility of our electric grid. And it's a part of that reality that isn't convenient for the political narrative. You know, I mean, to right. say, wait a second, we got to deal with this. Have you noticed any sort of political take up on this policy related take up on the stuff that you clearly and it's not debatable. I mean, that's the, the book is incredibly well written in terms of engagement. Uh, I was very, you know, the bottom line is I wish I could write that well to engage on it. You know what most people would say is a complex subject, you know, I mean, and you managed to convey it. So it's they can't use that excuse. They don't understand is what I'm saying. Yeah, I Have you seen a political take up? Is there a political take-up? Yes, there is, but it is, um, I'm just hoping it will continue to grow. So, for mm -hmm. example, I was uh, asked to speak to a, a, a symposium put together by the, um, the Connecticut legislature. And uh, so I spoke and our grid operators, the chairman of the grid operators spoke, other people spoke too. And what I'm trying to say is that when I was being asked questions, the people who were asking the questions, they were... Uh, only the legislators could ask questions, as I remember it, this, so everybody could watch. Uh, they were they were very familiar with my book, mm -hmm. so you know. I mean, I'm hoping that there's uh, that this will happen in more legislators, legislatures, and stuff, and and uh, and and that people will will read it and say, oh yeah, so that's why this stuff is going on. And so I think there is somewhat of a change. You can see in, in Europe, for example, the we're going to kill all the nuclear plants as soon as possible and be just like Germany is sort of fading out. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to be like Germany and kill all their nuclear plants. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, that's a, that's the side that I was looking at is there has been progress. I think you wrote uh, strategies for pro-nuclear advocacy in two th or it was published in 2016. Obviously, you'd been active well before that. But I do see a po I'm trying to be positive here. You see, I'm trying to finish on a positive note. But I do see a lot of progress on that, like common, not common sense, but research has sort of dominated, whether we're talking about nuclear waste and the myths around that, the clean energy or the clean air part, the clean emissions part, all of that. I see we're in a much better place than we were certainly when you wrote that book, but even a few years ago. Oh yeah, I totally agree with you. And I also feel there's a lot of uh, grassroots organizing pro-nuclear where when I was writing that book, hmm. I asked a couple people, I said, uh, well, um, if somebody wants to be anti-nuclear, there's at least five 
organizations I could name, Greenpeace, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Sierra Club, uh, uh, Consumer Law Foundation, they can join. What can they join if they want to be pro-nuclear? And, and there was, it was kind of a big blank. And then someone said, well, if you're in California, you can join Citizens, CGNP, uh, Californians for Green Nuclear Power. I said, well, what if you're not in California? Okay. And, and then, and then someone else said, well, you can join the American Nuclear Society. I said, I am a member of the American Nuclear Society. It's about 150 bucks a year. And you have to show that you were in the nuclear industry. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a professional organization. It's mm-hmm. not, a, it's not a grassroots organizing organization. And now it's so different. I mean, it's so great. We've got, uh, Generation Atomic. We've got Mothers for Nuclear. We've got all kinds of organizations all over the place. And I just, I, I mean, it's like a dream come true for me to see that if someone wrote me from some state and said, hey, I want to get involved in being pro-nuclear, I'd have somewhere to send him or her. Do you think there was a tipping point in any way? Was it simply, as you mentioned, Germany still seems determined to be either finance Putin's war coming into the nuclear problem. I mean, I was very critical of that, of, you know, shutting down, no backup power. You know, so who did they go to? Was Russia? President Obama warned them. President Trump warned them, "Don't do this," and they were just sending money out there the whole time. You know, but yeah. was there an event that tipped the power? Was it that all of a sudden we came to appreciate that there was no emissions? Maybe that became a wider spread kind of understanding. Uh, anything that you can guess at that no, sort of has, has changed the the tenor of the debate? I don't know about that because uh, I think that the tenor of the debate has changed because of no emissions, but I don't think that was the driving force. I think the driving force was fuel security. And when you get right down to it, if there's anything that the whole Russian thing did, it showed us that natural gas is delivered just in time to use it. And if it, if there's a, a glitch in the delivery, you don't get to use it. Well, for example, a nuclear plant generally keeps, uh, a, when it refuels, it generally keeps 18 months of fuel on site in the reactor before the next refueling outage. So you see, the thing is that Putin can't interrupt a nuclear plant. I mean, obviously, you can prevent the plant from being refueled 18 months from now. But in, 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 a, in a realistic sense, it's not as hair trigger as natural gas being delivered just in time. And people began to see, hmm, if I have nuclear plants in my country and they have fuel on site, I'm not as vulnerable to these guys as I would be otherwise. Uh, forgive me, but I, I, I can't let you go without asking just if you were going to, you know, sort of sit back, get the crystal ball out and rub it together, you know, and let's say that, no, we're never going to get a renewable based grid that's going to be, you know, 100 percent renewable. That's just nonsense. But where it's a dominant power source, maybe the dominant power source, are we talking 15 years, do you think, 20 years, 25? Uh, no, I don't I don't think it's ever going to be a dominant power source except in special circumstances. So for example, if you're on a windy island and you have and the other way you can get power is you uh you can have uh, fuel oil delivered and put in big tanks at the harbor as you can see on many islands uh then you know you're going to have as, you're going to try and use as much of that wind as you can uh and back it up with fuel oil but if you're if you're in a, a, a more of a 
uh, a continent and you have more choices, then you, you're not going to want to do 100% renewables or even get close to it because it's so it's so scattered. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. Um, I uh, let me. I, I'm, I'm on a new little uh, uh, crusade here in a way where people keep saying uh, renewables are intermittent, and I, I've decided that that is rather a sweet way to put it. And the the more rely uh, reasonable way to put it is that renewables are subject to common mode failure. Okay, so means, elaborate. Yes, which means that one problem can shut down a whole bunch of stuff and so you have common mode failure with your um with your solar systems every night you have common mode failure for your wind turbines over a large area when the wind dies down you know like for example let's say recently there was a problem at one of our our nuclear plants and it went offline and people are expecting it won't be online for another two three days or whatever it didn't affect any of the other nuclear plants around here. Mm. There's not a common mode failure for nuclear plants. And everybody talks about the duck curve. And I'm like, yeah, you got a common mode failure there. That, uh, what a wonderful point you're making. And it's just another reminder. There's, I would just, uh, as I say, uh, I'm, I'm going to give them the book again, but uh, you've been working on that, you know, campaigning for clean air, uh, 2016, shorting the grid, the hidden fragility of our electric grid. As I say, I had that, rec- by the way, uh, Meredith, I had that recommended to me so often. That, that's how I, no, I'm serious. All your uh, friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I had to go, but but this is a great example to finish on that people don't aren't familiar with what you've just said. They don't know the ins and outs of renewable grids. And I mean, I, I backed it up ages ago, right back to we got people in charge who don't know the sun doesn't shine every day, you know, <laughs> who haven't figured out the wind doesn't blow and they might need some backup power. I mean, it's that it's, it sounds embarrassing. It's so fundamental. But uh, as you've just uh, said, with the common load failure, failure, this is this is sophisticated stuff that we haven't allowed for, and yet we're pushing ahead like it's going to happen, and it's not going to happen without huge disruptions. Uh, I hope it just won't happen. I hope that what we'll have is a grid that is dependent mostly on nuclear, and that uh, and for load following, nuclear can load follow, uh, but it tends to be expensive for that, and so maybe for load following, we'll have a mixture of uh, renewables and fossil and batteries. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything against renewables except that they are being overpromised. You see what I'm trying yes. to say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we're acting as if uh, it's not overpromised. Uh, this, yeah. this is such great stuff. Look, I got to thank you for finding time for us. Oh, it's uh, you know, yeah. No, it's been terrific. And, and, and I say very important stuff. And that's why when, you know, people want to weigh in, that's great, but weigh in with understanding. And the book is called Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. Meredith Angwin, thanks so much for finding time for us. Thank you for inviting me.